Welcome to the Breaking to Startups podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds who broke into tech. Today, we chatted with Isiad Ferreiras, and we start the episode by talking about Isiad's role as a VP of sales at Hustle. We then take a deep dive on how someone can become a rockstar salesperson. And Isiad drops a lot of gems, so make sure you take his advice. And by that, I mean... Take the opportunity and connect with them if you are someone who is looking to break into sales. On the latter part of the episode, Isa talks about his upbringing, what it was like to be growing up in the Bronx, being raised by a single mom, and literally having to fight to survive. On this episode, Isa also shares parts of his story that even some of his closest friends have never heard before, so you definitely want to listen to the whole thing. On a different note, I want to make an announcement that we recently put together a curated list of schools and programs that we trust. Some of the programs even give discounts to our community members who apply using those links. You can find it by going to breakingtostarbs.com forward slash resources. And remember that by doing so, you're also supporting Breaking Into Startups so we can continue to share quality stories of our guests. And finally... If you listened to the previous episodes, you've heard about the five-step challenge that we've put together. We also created a separate Facebook group for those people taking the challenge. And this week, we had several folks reach some milestones, so I wanted to give them a shout-out. First, I want to give a shout-out to Adrian Horning, who moved out to San Francisco with $1,500. And over the last few months, he's been hustling various jobs and applying to coding boot camps. This week, Adrian found out that he's been accepted into App Academy and Hack Reactor, and now he's preparing for the next phase. Adrian, I know you're listening to this, so keep grinding. We also have Iris Nevins, who is a middle school teacher and a community organizer from Florida, who recently got accepted into Hackbrite, and she's also going to become a software engineer. Iris is going to be moving out to San Francisco in a few weeks to start her cohort in July, so stay tuned. And lastly, I want to give a shout out to Twain Alston, who moved out to the Bay from Philly to become a software engineer. He's been not only teaching himself how to code, but he's been following our advice, grabbing coffee and meeting several of our guests from the podcast. He also just found out this week that he's been accepted into Dev Bootcamp. So if you want to hear more about how people like Adrian, Iris, and Twain are navigating the tech landscape, or maybe even you want to break into tech yourself, go to breakingtostartups.com forward slash challenge and sign up. I hope you enjoyed this episode and let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timor Meister. And this is the Breaking the Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, so it's 10 p.m. on a Tuesday night. And today we're recording out of Hustle, which is a startup based out here in Fidei. And it's getting pretty late tonight. And But we have a dope guest, and he's literally about to light a fire with his dope story. Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah, thanks, Timor. We're here with Isia Ferreiras, who is the VP of sales for Hustle, as Timor mentioned. And for those of you that don't know, 
Hustle is a text messaging platform that is now being used by major politicians and people in nonprofits and labor, including uh, the Bernie Sanders team, Hillary Clinton team, Planned Parenthood, a lot of unions like UFCW, et cetera. And what's really interesting about this company is not only that they've sent over 60 million messages, but they're still in seed stage and ECI and his sales team has been able to take it from zero to over $5 million in book revenue, which is one of the fastest growing trajectories in Silicon Valley history. ECI and I were sitting down having a conversation that had nothing to do with hustle or breaking into startups. And we're just catching up because we used to be housemates. And during our conversation, ECI was like, yo, you know, he's mentioning that he used to be an engineer. I was like, I didn't know you were an engineer. And then how he's now leading the sales team and it's like taking off like crazy. And, you know, as he's mentioning these different dynamics, he was talking a little bit more about how when he first moved to San Francisco, everybody's like has this fetish for hiring engineers and why is that the case? And how, you know, salespeople are keeping the lights on and like everything about people with not traditional backgrounds and how he had a not traditional background. And then like, you know, I started getting like really interested in, in what he was talking about. Yeah, it was a it was a really fun conversation because I, I'd been I started following what you were doing with uh the Break Into Startup podcast, you were posting all over Facebook. Like the, I think at that point, there were like five posts a day about this uh, Break Into Startup thing. That's it? Only five? <laughs> <laughs> I think I've content more. And Twitter. Yeah, there were, there, were, there were lots of posts. And I was, you know, so I started looking into it more because I have this thing where I'm very passionate about trying to find people of non-traditional backgrounds and help them, you know, find good employment and, you know, whenever possible have that employment be with whatever team I'm on. And uh, so what that turned into is a conversation with Ruben where I was just like, hey, look, man, I knew he was already, he was good, but I wanted to find out if there were people that you guys were interviewing with breaking into startups that maybe should work at my company. I was working at Hustle. I am working at Hustle. And on the flip side, because I like to find really interesting people, if you guys would be interested in interviewing some of the people that I found even if they didn't have an engineering backgrounds, because I saw it mostly was engineering. So I was like, well, I've got some really strong salespeople, really strong marketing people, non-traditional backgrounds. Would you like to talk to them? Yeah. And it was really interesting because like, as he kept describing the company, I was like, hey, is this the same messaging platform that, you know, we were using when, you know, I moved here in 2014 and we were these housemates and you guys were sending these text messages to invite everybody to brunch through this app. And, uh, and you were like, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's the same exact thing, you know, and you were so convincing with the way that you shared your story that that you actually convinced me to join your team at Hustle as well. So now I'm here working with you, which is interesting, which is how we got to this conversation and you're doing amazing things. And we're working with all of our initial team of people that were, you know, housemates at this house called Agape and it's all coming full circle. Yeah. I mean, it's a, uh, yeah, very, very, it, it's, it's also funny just like how it came up, you know, very, very flattering that you thought my story would be one that you wanted to feature in breaking into startups. It, I've, you know, like you, you've, you've actually interviewed somebody that I grew up with, Edgar, Edgar Pabone. Shout out oh. to Edgar. Um, yeah. Shout no out way. to Edgar. Yeah. We were, yeah, we went to Horace Mann together, grew up in the Bronx together. It was pretty cool. Small seeing, world. Yeah. Very small world. And um, it, yeah. And I, I remember, you know, just, just like him, I dropped out of, I dropped out of university too. I was the year above him, so I like to think I set the trend there yeah. between us. But yeah, uh, <laughs> no, no, and, and 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 it's awesome because like in a world of technology where the way that you build these organizations is very unique versus like a traditional company, 
Um, a lot of these organizations tend to measure their growth in users, but you're actually, you know, growing so quickly that you're measuring like in in dollars. And so you're a VP of sales, you know, how do you think about structuring organization? How do you even get to this point in 18 months? A lot of luck, really. And, you know, some hard work too. But mostly it was, so when I joined Hustle, like as, as you pointed out, Perry was, Perry was already using it. He'd been dogfooding it and he'd already found a bunch of really strong beta clients. So yeah, I joined when it happened to be $0 in revenue, but it was mostly a technicality, right? Like he'd already found really strong beta clients and it was just a matter of structuring the contract with them and getting them signed up. So I joined, I did some of that. And then, you know, you start looking for customers, new customers that look like your existing ones. And then, and then it's just a matter of sales fundamentals. So you want to make sure you qualify people, you talk to them, and you anything that's standing in the way between them hearing about your product and then trying out your product and then signing a piece of paper that says that they're going to pay you money for that product and then actually giving you the money for that product, you just want to shrink all that. Yeah. yeah. And so let's, let's break these sales fundamentals down. I think first, like, let's talk a little bit more about how you structure the team. So there's like, there's SDRs, there's AEs, like kind of talk about the roles and then like, you know, how you think about each one of those roles. Yeah, sure. So like as the company gets bigger, you know, and as the team gets bigger, you, you get to, um, you start having the privilege of being able to really specialize, right? So when, when it starts out and it's just, uh, you know, just like one person there doing the whole sales and marketing stuff, you're creating your own materials, you're finding leads, you're talking to those leads, you're taking them through the process of trying out your product, you're negotiating with them over what the price is going to be and when they're going to start paying you for it, when it's going to stop being free for them. You're sending them the paperwork, you're talking to their lawyers, you're talking to your lawyers, you're talking to your CEO to like get your CEO to agree with your lawyer that you'll agree to the terms that the customer wants you to agree with, like all this stuff, right? And it adds up. And then finally, you get a contract. And then after that, you get to start the joys of getting them to pay you, which is its own whole separate thing, right? That's how it is. Like you, when you are the sales and marketing team, you're doing all of that, right? Uh, and, but, and when you first joined, you were the first salesperson for Hustle, right? Yeah, I, w- I was that team. You, so that was it me. was literally you doing all these roles? Yeah, I was, I was, you know, well, and yes, and also that's like a good problem to have, mm-hmm. right? So it's a really good problem for, to, to, it's a good sign to even have those problems where people are trying to buy your product. Yeah. So I, I got to walk into a situation where the co-founders, Perry and Roddy, had already found really strong customers. And again, it was just a matter of getting them to sign the contract. So I get to say like we went from zero to 5 million, but I got to walk into a really strong position where they'd already spent about a year and change or eight months or 10 months, something like that, building this product, testing it out with people and really getting that going. Right. So then you start talking about roles. Well, so, okay. So I was the revenue side of this org. Right. But then as we start growing, you start getting to specialize. Right. So you know, I've, I've been selling stuff for a while, so I'm pretty decent at helping to negotiate these contracts and stuff like that, you know, happens to be one of the ways that I can contribute. So then you start, you start saying like, okay, well, who are the other strong salespeople in your network that you know, right? So that you can start kind of, so you can start working on deals together mm-hmm. and start specializing on things. And so you can take on some deals and, and you're able to double your capacity. So that's the next role you, the, you know, you, you might end up hiring for is like somebody else who can also sell. Is that right? kind of like another account executive type of person? Somebody exactly. that's a closer? Yeah. Like in my case, it was because that was, that was where we were hamstrung actually was just, we needed more people to help us close, 
to help us guide people through the buying process and like close these deals, right? And so, so we hit we get that, and then there's enough deals going on where people are trying to try the product. You need people to help people use the product. So you start hiring sales engineering help. Sales engineers are people who help somebody who's not already a customer use the product so that they can understand how valuable it is to set you up to have a really strong negotiation so you can then close them and, and go through all the rigmarole of signing the contract, right? That's a sales engineer, right? Once you have a really strong sales engineer and another really good AE, then you start, you start wanting to not have to generate your own leads anymore, right? You start getting to the point where it's actually a big problem. So for us, this started presenting itself. There started being some news articles about us and how we were working with the Bernie Sanders campaign and some of the work we did with Everytown. So we were starting to get all these leads and I try to be very responsive. And just the time that it took for me and Perry and at that point, Monica to just answer, you know, respond to the, to these like inbound requests to use our product, it's taking up so much time that I was impacting our ability to sell stuff. So the next role was a sales development rep. So their role is to qualify the leads. So basically, so that if somebody's either not looking to buy fast enough for it to make an impact materially for your revenue, or they just don't have a big enough budget or a big enough use case, or they're not the right person, right? Like, so let's say it's a volunteer for an organization. Well, they don't control budget. It doesn't make sense for you to talk to them, right? But you still want to talk to them, right? You want to ask them like, well, hey, do you know somebody at that organization, right? Like, so you still want to treat everybody with respect. That's that sales development representative's job is to like talk to people and make sure that the rest of the team is only talking to the people who you really need to talk to, right? So you do those pieces and then you start, you know, then you start hiring in more of each of those roles. And then you start getting to the point where, well, you know, you have enough of each of those roles, you need to hire managers. Then <laughs> then you yeah. yeah, and that's that's the stage. What level of experience does one need to be like an SDR versus account executive? And for people from non-traditional backgrounds, I guess what would you count as experience? Yeah. So, so an account executive is, it depends on the organization, how much experience somebody needs. When I say it depends on the company, what I mean is it both depends on what they're selling. So like the, the, the more a product costs, typically the more experienced you want the salespeople to be. And the more complex it is to buy, you need them to be more experienced because there's actually a lot of mechanics to the sales process when you start negotiating contracts and stuff like that. But then also how far along it is as well and how well-funded the company is, is also going to impact that, right? So if it's a company that's you know not particularly well run, it's probably it's a lot easier to get a job than in a company that's you know got a stronger product, stronger team, more well run, right? Like so that's the AE position. Like you typically need to have some pretty strong sales experience, and there and a good company is going to want you to have experience selling a similar product to the one that they have. And when I say similar, it doesn't mean that the product does the same thing. It means that it costs roughly the same amount, and it's about the same level of complexity um, to sell, right? So that's the AE role. Then there's the SDR role that stands for sales development representative. Again, that's their job to develop opportunities to sell into an organization. That's the entry-level sales role. So that's the role that if you're really persistent... So there's usually more people applying for SDR jobs than there are SDR jobs. So like at Hustle, for example, we get dozens and dozens of applications for people who want to get an entry-level job on the sales team. So the way to stand out is not by talking about, well, actually, if you've got really relevant experience, that'll help you stand out, right? But usually it's just the people who are the most persistent, right? Like our information's on LinkedIn, right? If you start emailing and finding people on social media and stuff all across up and down the company and are just like, I really want to work here. Well, that's pretty much, that's the job of the sales development rep is like, uh, when they work at Hustle, we'll give them a list of companies that, were, that are really interesting to us. We'll give them a list of names and be like, get me a meeting with them. 
right? And if you can get a meeting with with you know a senior level of our sales team, and then not give up when when we say like, hey, sorry, we're we're too busy, whatever, or just like straight up ignore you. You keep persistent, mm-hmm. you'll end up getting a job. This reminds me of our previous guest, Ina, who actually went out and created leads and like actually got clients for a startup she wanted to apply for. And she was, I think she had used her affiliate link to get like a hundred people to sign up. And then she contacted, I don't know, their growth marketer or their salesperson was like, hey, if you check the stats, I'm actually the highest like referred, like your partner or ambassador. And they were like, oh, that's super impressive. And then she got an interview with them and she was able to have a conversation. But that's pretty interesting that you brought up that, hey, don't give up. Like part of the job requires persistence and when you're interviewing, you need to display those qualities. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, what Ina did is even better, right? Like show up to my organization with some already closed sales somehow. Yep. Yeah. You'll definitely get hired. Um, <laughs> the, you know, yeah. Forget what I said Listeners, about just take bugging note, us. Take yeah, note, start, take note. Start bugging prospective customers. Show up with a contract just waiting to be signed. And uh, yeah, you definitely got a job. So once, yeah. uh, <laughs> besides, besides being persistent, once that person does get a hold of someone senior on your team, and now you, they come in into an interview and you're speaking to that person. What are those qualities or what are those things that you look for in someone who's not just going to be qualified for the sales development role, but someone who can grow within your organization? Well, that's usually, well, once you're in the organization, uh, you know, once you're in any sales mm-hmm. organization, it starts being about your numbers, yeah. right? And, and the, the thing is, it's very hard to tell who's actually going to be able to do well in an organization until they actually start doing that job. Mm-hmm. So there could be people who are persistent over email, but then, you know, they're scared to get on the phone and talk to people or they're, they're scared, you know, or, or they think they know everything and they, you know, they're not very coachable. Right. So you try to be like, well, you know, here's what this other salesperson's doing and they're, they're killing it. You should probably be saying some of the same stuff they're doing. They're saying, and, uh, you know, so a lot of it is like coachability and like how they work in the dynamics of the team and the things like that. It's really, really hard to tell ahead of time. So it's usually just kind of like be really persistent, show that, you know, demonstrate that, that you've got strong written communication skills, right? Like you do that by writing really good emails and, you know, show that you're a good researcher by, you should know what we do before you show up to a job, you know, interviewing with us, you know, like, like stuff, stuff like that, right? Like, like just really show that you're a smart, inquisitive person. And that'll get you an SDR job, especially if you come from a non-traditional background in my in my organization. Because I, I try to over-index for people who who have demonstrated that they don't accept they don't accept uh, temporary adversity. Yeah, as something that's going to become permanent for them. Yeah, no, and I think that's a great breakdown of the roles. And as you were talking about sales and how to get you know to create this crazy growth that you've all have been exa- like the whole team has been able to successfully execute. You talked about sales fundamentals. And so, you know, from working with you, I know you talk a lot about things like Bant and Medic and things like that. Can you break down how you think about sales fundamentals and things like that? Yeah. So so when you when you first start, you know, when, when you're early on in the company and you're just trying to get deals, you know, your first deals and you're not doing, you're not necessarily doing a really strong job of, of uh, like when your problem is we just need more people to talk to and your problem isn't there's too many people trying to talk to us, then the first thing you need to start doing is qualifying people out. But you want to do it in a very basic way, right? So you start out using using this acronym called BANT, which stands for Budget, Authority, Need, and Timing, right? Do they have enough money? Does the organization have enough money? Are you talking to somebody who can release it? Do they actually need your product? If they don't need it, it doesn't matter how much money and who they are, they realistically won't end up buying it when it comes to, you know, when it gets in front of whatever buying committee. 
And then finally timing, are they trying to buy the shit fast enough for it to matter for your number, you know, that quarter or that year, or are they trying to buy something like two years from now, right? If you're trying to buy something two years from now, well, you know, talk to me in a year and a half, <laughs> you know? So that's ban, right? And that's your, your basic level qualifying. So when we, when I started building out the sales team at Hustle, that was enough for us. We were just trying to get people to talk to us. Uh, but then as we got busier and we started hiring more salespeople, that was starting to be enough to just talk to a salesperson. But then I had to also help the team close. And I also had to manage my own time and make sure I was working on deals that were very likely to close and for a large amount. So in that case, you start using another acronym called MEDIC, M-E, two Ds, an I, and then two Cs, right? So the M stands for metrics, uh, which is just uh, how are you going to measure the success you know, of, of using this product, right? So that's stuff like, hey, are you looking for more money, you know, like being generated for your sales team? Are you looking for more people to show up to an event? Like, you know, are you looking for, you know, if it's some like, you know, engineering product, like less downtime or something? Like, how is it that you're going to measure that using this product made you more successful, right? Then there's E, uh, that stands for economic buyer. That's just your, like, whose budget is this thing coming out of, right? Who has to be convinced to like buy your thing as opposed to somebody else's? And who, if they say no, the deal is now dead, right? So that's the E. Then you got two Ds. That's your decision makers, right? So who are all the people who are involved in the deal that, that realistically most of them, if not all of them, need to say yes, right? But different from the, economic, from the economic buyer, right? You can have somebody who like has budget and they'll be the ones who sign the contract, but then they need everybody who works for them, you know, like some engineer, some marketing person, somebody on the sales team and like a bunch of other people who might interact with this product to all say yes, or at least give feedback before they feel comfortable releasing budget, right? So that's the decision-making team. Then you've got another D, which stands, yeah, this thing's long, right? <laughs> um, so then you've got another D, which is your, which is the decision criteria. How are they evaluating the tool? Mm. Like, has this been figured out, you know, separate from the metrics? Like, are they going to go through a POC process, proof of concept? Are they just going to, you know, sign something, you know, but want the ability to opt out, you know, if it doesn't work well for them, whatever, right? Then I is for identified pain. So typically the easiest thing for people to do is not buy a product. It's to not spend money because to keep doing the same thing they were already doing. So unless somebody's experiencing real pain in some part of the process, like whether it's, hey, I'm not going to meet my revenue number, so I'll get fired. And I, if I don't buy this tool, it's going to help me make more money. Or if it's um, like, hey, I just had a kid and I'm responsible for uptime. And if I don't buy this product that helps me get more uptime, I'm never going to make my kids soccer games. That's a real pain point. You could yeah. sell off that. You know, like there's stuff like that, right? That's the I. And then you've got these two C's, right? One C is competition. Mm -hmm. So what are you competing against? What else is trying to get that budget? What else is trying to solve those pain points? You know, what, what else is out there? that they're conscious of and really evaluating you against. If they don't do you, what's the next? What's the next thing on the list? And then the final C is the champion. Who is it that really resonates with your product? Who is it that is going to give you the inside scoop on what's going on? Who's going to like give you, who's going to talk really favorably of you when they're in those inside meetings with people? Who is it that if, that if you're like, that if I were to ask you like, hey, who do you know at that company? You're like, oh, well, I'm texting with this person. And uh, they seem to be really into it. That's, that's your champion, right? So like, it's long, right? So mm -hmm. this is complicated, right? It's only worth doing this when you're selling tools and when you're selling products that are above a certain, um, that, that are above a certain total contract value, that are mm -hmm. above a certain amount of money that somebody's going to pay, right? If somebody's only trying to buy, to 
pay like a thousand bucks for whatever it is that you're selling. It's not worth going through all this time and effort and energy to do it, right? But if you are selling things above a certain contract value, um, like you know fifty thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars, millions of dollars. In our case, um, most of our customers are in the like somewhere between like fifty and two hundred thousand dollar range. We've had one that was over a million. Um, when you're when you're doing things that level, it is worth taking the time to really do this and figure it out. Is it typically the account executive that goes through this um, framework, or do you do it as a team? Um, and then, what is the format that you, um, I guess, go through each the, each criteria? Is it something like is it a, um, a report that you put out, or kind of how does that uh, present itself? So the the SDR will do the band qualification, right? So it's basically kind of like the SDR is like the is like the bouncer you have to get through to talk to the AE, mm-hmm. right? AEs at a strong sales organization. These are these are people who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. They're they're closing big deals. Their time is worth a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, SDRs are the people who are trying to become AEs and are like you know getting up on the ropes and yeah mm-hmm. you know like like really paying really paying their dues and learning these sales fundamentals so they could become AEs, right? So SDRs do band, right? Then the AEs will confirm that the band stuff was real. Right. And then they start trying to figure out like, okay, how do I, how do I remove everything between this conversation and them signing a contract? Right. And then in the process of doing that, they won't necessarily be consciously filling out every piece of medic. Right. But if the deal ever gets stuck, that's how you get it unstuck. Mm-hmm. Right. So really good sales people will be, will be, will, will have done this for so long mm-hmm. on a conscious way that they start doing it unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Right. But then, uh, so so everybody who's an AE at Hustle is a really strong salespeople, a really strong salesperson, uh, like really strong. And uh, so so they're doing all this stuff unconsciously. The only time we're consciously going through medic is when a deal is stuck. And for us, a deal is stuck if it's been in the same uh, stage for about fourteen days or so. Mm-hmm. Then we're like, hey, what's going on with this one? Then we start, you know, then we start going down all the letters in medic, and you know, it's just kind of like. Um, rapid fire going down this, you know, a bunch of list of questions. And then when the AE stutters, that's when we both know, okay, that's what we got to work on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you touched on a few things there um, about, you know, how a lot of SDRs really want to become AEs and AEs make hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I think very briefly, like mentioning, like kind of how compensation structure is set up for a SDR versus like an AE. And kind of touching on uncapped commissions, just so like people that are thinking about sales roles and breaking into sales roles at Hustle and just in tech in general, how to think about that. Yeah, totally. So it should always be just based on formulas at any organization you work at. And the, you know, so typical like Bay Area compensation for SDRs is going to be anywhere from 50K on the low end to about 100K if you're like killing your number and like doing well on a higher end for, you know, for a startup, it, it might be a little bit higher at a and more. Is that base uh, or is that base? And Th- that's, that's OTE that's on target earnings. So that's base plus your commission. Mm-hmm. And then for the AEs, again, it depends on what, how complex of a product you're selling. If it's a really simple product, it'll be less, but you know, at hustle, for example, OT, you know, the way it always goes is like you have a quota and then you get on target earnings plus you, is you get a base and then you get commission. Mm-hmm. Right. And then like the way things are right now at Hustle, for example, is just be super transparent is everybody's got a million dollar quota 
And in exchange for hitting that million dollars, they get 150K OTE. Mm-hmm. And then if they, if they do more than that, they start blowing it out, they get paid substantially more. So, and like, where's, where's that fall? Well, we're a seed stage company. So we pay around the same as like any other, we actually are, we pay a little less to mid range as most companies. Yeah. And how does, I love the fact that you brought up that you guys, you guys are seed stage when it comes to uh, some of our listeners might not necessarily know the difference between a seed stage company, series A, or some, some company that might've raised $200 million or, and they're in like series D or series E. So how does that, what would you say are the differences and how does the salesperson's or the account executive's role changes as you go from selling something at a seed stage company versus uh, a series D or series E? It'll typically just get more and more specialized, right? So the stage we're at now mm-hmm. is uh, we just have A's. You know, us like a year or two years from now, we'll have, we'll have a distinction between account executives that will meet people in person versus inside sales who will have lower quotas and typically do deal like smaller deals, but like still real deals. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's a little more specialized role. It's like a stepping stone to becoming an AE. And then above AEs will be senior AEs, which will be the people doing like the really big deals, particularly strategic and prestigious accounts. That's, a, you know, and, and you'll just get more and more and more specialized, right? So you'll also get like more specific territories. So like maybe like instead of just being able to sell to anybody, you only sell to certain you know, certain industries or, you know, then just one industry. And then finally you'll get so big that you only sell to one company, right? You, you can like, if you're a company like Microsoft or IBM or something like that, you might have, you might have an AE whose only job is just to like, just to sell to Google or even like one division of Google or something like that. Yeah. 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 No, and it makes a lot of sense. And I think something else that's very unique before like talking about, it's a little bit more about your background, how you got up to this point is, Hustle is not just selling something to consumers. This is a B2B company and B2B sales is very different from consumer sales and is significantly more complex. And you haven't touched as much on sales cycle and the fact that Hustle's sales cycle is so short versus other B2B companies. So it'd be great to hear your thoughts on you know all of that. Yeah. So one of the main differences between B2B and B2C, so biz- like when you're selling to other business people, Versus when you're selling directly to consumers, is that when you're selling directly to consumers, the like th- think like selling cars or selling like like small residential real estate and things like that. The kinds of skills that you need are mostly like interpersonal skills, psychology skills, and then like the ability to like ask people and be able to hear a no, right? So like you know you'll hear people talking about closing, right? And then you've got like your stereotypical like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross type stuff, like always be closing and stuff like that. That's more true in B2C sales than that is in B2B sales. B2B sales, you're basically a business person. You're trying to, you're talking to people. Yeah, you're not trying to do it. You you do it if you keep your job. You talk to people about what your product is a little bit. Mostly what you're talking to them about is their business. So you're talking to them about what it is that they've got going on, what they're trying to accomplish, what it, you know, how does their organization work? What does success in their role look like for them? What does success for their company look like for them? And then you just try to figure out, like, can you materially help them or not? If you can materially help them, then they're going to want to have a conversation with you and you can figure out a way to work with them. If you can't figure that out, though, then there's no reason for them to talk to you. There's not really a reason for you to talk to them. You just be wasting each other's time. And that's definitely a solution selling approach. But I think something that you have also done, 
like uniquely here or like I'll say this more recent just based off like kind of challenger sale methodology that we'll talk about is like the hustle team is a hybrid of not just tech people and salespeople, but there's like people that have been worked in political campaigns and these different verticals where you can also teach people about their industry and like not just have conversations asking a bunch of questions, figure out, out what their needs are, but you can really like tailor for resonance and differentiation and take control of sales and like have something that is pretty much a no brainer to use. Yeah, definitely. Like so so once once you do figure out what somebody's problem is, you got to come in with a solution that's better than they would have just thought of themselves, right? <laughs> so so you got to so one of the main things that that you would do as a business person when you happen to be representing this product is is you say like, "Okay, well, you know, here's here's your problems. Here's a way that you can solve it." And you you want to bring as much proof to that conversation as possible about how you can how you can help them solve it. And if you can, if you can actually show up with some stuff that they haven't really thought of before or they haven't seen before, um, then you're actually adding real, real value during the sales process. So that's when people want to keep talking to you. Uh, and that's, that's a large part of what the, of what my job is now, uh, when, you know, when onboarding salespeople is like, show them how we've been solving problems for various organizations. Um, those become case studies and, you know, materials like that. Um, let them know like what people are doing with the product and then help them understand the product really well so that they can start coming up with their own stuff and, um, and really be able to think creatively about how to solve problems for people. But really it's again, like when, when you switch from like B2C to B2B, it switches from, I'm trying to sell something to more like, I'm trying to find people who have problems that I can solve. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. That, that's a, a great overview. And so, I mean, you, you're this you're this Dominican kid from the Bronx in San Francisco building out this amazing sales organization. Um, and it'd be like, what was the first thing that you ever sold and how did you get excited about, you know, politics in general? Hmm. So first thing I ever sold was illegal cable boxes. Uh, so I was, you know, like, like they had these like scramblers in them. And, uh, you know, you put it in, you, you know, you swap out the, the, the cable box that the cable company gave you with one of, with one of the ones I sold you. And now you can watch HBO and like, you know, all the pay-per-view channels and stuff like that. That was the first thing I sold. So B2C sales, uh, you know, very, very simple sales process. You know, you want the pay-per-view, you could, you know, pay me a little bit of money. And, and take us got- back. How old were you? Uh, when, how old were you when you were, you started selling uh, cable boxes? I was 12 years old. Okay. So you were born, yeah. you were born hustler. <laughs> yeah. You could say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you 12, you, you, you sold the cable boxes. Um, you uh, talk a little bit more about, you know, you, you told us a t-shirt story that kind of like got you interested. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. So like, yeah, so I was 12 years old. Uh, at that point I was going to this like pretty fancy private school. So I got a scholarship to the school called Horace Mann. Um, which I was really fortunate to be at. Um, it was like, I was just amazed to be there. I got to, I got to switch from where I was before. And what type of scholarship did you get and how did you get it? Oh, so I I got this, I was again, like just really fortunate. I got this like crazy scholarship. Um, it was a full scholarship. It covered pretty much everything. Like, well, not everything. It didn't cover food. It didn't cover the school bus, uh, but it covered everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was able to go to this really fancy school. Um, and the way that I got it was I was in this program called Prep for Prep, uh, which uh, is a really amazing program that basically takes 
minority children who were in public schools in New York City and the immediate surrounding area. And then after a 14-month process, helps you get scholarships to private schools. And then like to get in there is really hard too. Like they there's all these standardized testing. They do an IQ test on you. They do this like psychological test on you. They just call it, they say it's an interview, but I know now looking back on it, it was this psychological test. And uh, yeah, it was, but, but that, that program totally changed my life. It got me into, into yeah. Horseman. Yeah. Yeah. And let's take it because Horseman growing up in New York, I knew that was like one of the best schools that only like the smart rich kids went. So, but you came up from a very different background. Like Ruben mentioned, you were born in the Bronx. I mean, you, were you born in the Bronx or were your family moved yeah. to the Bronx from the no, Dominican was, Republic? Uh, well, my mother did move to the Bronx to the Dominican mm-hmm. Republic. I was born in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. So so you yeah. were born there. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing. And were you a rich kid growing up? Your household. Describe to us what it's like growing up in the Bronx in the 90s, right? Or so, well, in the 80s or 90s? Yeah, it, both. You know, I was born in 83. <laughs> but uh, yeah, my my household itself was like really amazing, loving household. My mom was a single parent at the time, only spoke Spanish. Spanish but, was your first language. Yeah, Spanish was my first language. Uh, I, I started learning English when I went to, uh, when I was in public school. And, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a great, yeah, like lots of love in the home, you know, not so much love in the neighborhood as a whole, but, you know, very loving place. My mom put me and I have two younger sisters. She always put us first and, you know, very encouraging yeah, just really amazing mom. Like her, her whole thing was just taking care was of us. Was that her idea sure. to um, apply to that prep for prep? Or was that just something you found out and you're like, hey, I need to go do that because I want to get a better education? Well, it was it was um, like the teachers kind of like were like, hey, here's this thing. You mm-hmm. should apply to it. And my mom was always into anything having to do with education. So that's, a, that's one of the advantages that I had growing up. Like, yeah, you know, we were on welfare and like, yeah, English is my second language. And like, yeah, mom didn't really quite know how to how to navigate stuff and you know things like that. But on the flip side, me and my sisters and making sure we had access to good education was definitely her top priority. So anything that was educational, she was always there. So yeah, I was I performed well enough that I kind of stood out in school. There's something else I was fortunate about. I didn't have to work too hard and always did well academically. So then the, the teachers encouraged me to apply. Got it, got it. And so you you're living in this home. You have a lot of love there. You are applying for programs like Prep for Prep, but you said something about your neighborhood. Can you kind of paint the picture of the neighborhood around you while you were selling things in and like studying and applying? Yeah, sure. So, so my customers for these cable boxes were my classmates at Horace Mann, right? So I was doing whatever I could to make money at that point because, yeah, I had a full scholarship, but that scholarship didn't cover food. It also didn't cover the school bus. The food thing was actually like, kind of an issue because you know my my mom was raising us on food stamps and so the way that the way that those were doled out they just assumed that you would be eating food at school right and when i was going to public school definitely like you know you there was free lunches and if you showed up early enough you can get free breakfast so you know there was enough there you know versus at, at horace man and i know they would have fixed it if i just like talked to them about it or something but i was pretty embarrassed there wasn't the you know like I don't think they have to deal with the idea that like people going there might be too poor to be able to like afford to even like make their own food and then also have dinner. Right. And I also wasn't going to talk to my mom about it. Right. Cause she was always putting us first and like, she would have not eaten in exchange for me having a good meal. You know, like, like it's not even like, like she would have made it so that we both ate not enough. She would have like made sure that I always had a feast 
and she would have not eaten in exchange for that, you know? So I definitely didn't want to tell her and like make her make her think about that. So yeah, I was doing stuff like I was selling legal cable cable boxes, did that for a bit. And then Horseman was the kind of place that people would just leave their book bags around and stuff like that. So I also yeah, I so stole stuff. You know, I uh, I was yeah, I was I was just engaged in in illegal activities and you know like dealing with the I had a certain level of like like bitterness that I was like the poor kid going there, but it was conflicted because I was also really grateful that I got to go there in the first place, and I was also like really annoyed that I you know couldn't afford food, but I also didn't want to fall into a victim mentality, and I wanted to take care of myself. I didn't want to ask for a handout and be like, hey, can you guys give me food? I was like stealing food from the cafeteria and shit. Yeah. So like that, that was kind of, that's where I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, to, and so, and that's, that's the dynamic of Horace Mann. And, and you, in the pre-chat, we talked a little bit more about, you know, you mentioned how you had to take a bus to get there. And there was like a lot of nuances related to even the building that you were living in and kind of like how you, the obstacles you had to face, even in your commute to school and how that influenced a lot of things that you were doing. Yeah. I, well, there was a bus that bus cost. Yeah. Like the scholarship didn't cover the school bus either. So for a little while I, I rode my bicycle and then my bike got stolen. Uh, and then after my bike got stolen, that was the end of the bicycle. So I started running. To, so I started running to school, but yeah, as you pointed out, like it was, uh, it was the nineties. Uh, so there was, it was like the tail end of the crack epidemic, but like the beginning to by the end of it, the middle of the like gang epidemic, you know, going on in New York. So in between my house and school, there were like a bunch of different gang territories. And, you know, there's always, there's always people just, you know, looking to make trouble. It was, it was not a particularly safe neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I definitely like did not feel safe. And, you know, in the process of just getting to and from school, I definitely got myself into a few physical altercations and it, yeah, I just, so for our listeners, yeah. the reason you were running is because you just wanted to kind of pass through these territories as fast as possible, right? Because you didn't want to like walk and then expose yourself to potentially people targeting you. Yeah. And I know that, you know, people that are listening to this episode, some of them might have found this online and things like that. But for people that are listening, he kind of described some of your theories for why people might have been targeting you on the way. I mean, there's different games. There was the Bloods, there was the Crips, there was the the Nietas and yeah, the, um, Latin the Latin Kings like, and things like that. Yeah. But, you know, even though you're Dominican, you know, can you talk a little bit more about why? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm Dominican, but I'm also like pretty white looking. Right. So, so I'm a white passing Dominican. And uh, yeah, like at, at that time, there was like lots of, you know, lots of people trying to prove themselves. Everybody in that neighborhood scared. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're in a gang or not, you're scared. And so, you know, which one of the things you're trying to do is just like get into a gang if you're not in one or get respect from a gang and like all this stuff. And like, and it's all about these gangs. That was just the time. And uh, so, yeah, like lots of, you know, like, like you see this like white looking kid going through your neighborhood, you know, that's like, you know what, probably rather fight that kid than like, you know, some bigger, tougher looking kid. And in the yeah. pre-chat you mentioned, that's when um, maybe like your peers who are trying to get initiated into the gangs the gangs make them attack or make them fight kids who are just in that area. Is that what happened? Yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty much. It's like, you know, that, that's just kind of how it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So- you know, like, like at the time there was, there was stuff like people getting their faces slashed randomly on the subway, you know, so there's like, like lots of fear going on there. Right. Like, so it's not just like you're worried about getting beat up. You're worried about like getting like your face slashed and you're worried about, you know, like, like I was not worried about getting shot but I was worried about getting stabbed or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. 
And as you're, you know, running through these obstacles, you're going to school, there's all kinds of things that you're, all kinds of family dynamics that are going on, the value of education. Something unique happened to you that introduced you to tech related to one of those subway trips when you were concerned about getting your face slashed, but there's nobody on the train and something, you know, jumped out to you. What was that? Oh, yeah. So like the way, the way that I first, yeah, like my first laptop was actually, you know, kind of funnily enough, like one that I literally found on the subway. It was like an Ernst and Young laptop. And like from there, you know, I got, yeah, I, I like got a laptop and like learned how to code. I'd already started learning how to code in high school because they, they have a really strong computer science program at Horace Mann. And like there's a computer science program and the computer labs and like all this kind of stuff. But there was only so late I could stay at school to actually use this stuff because then it starts getting dark. And like if you're not, home, like, it, you know, becomes a whole thing, you know, again, going through the dangerous neighborhood. But then I, I did find a laptop. And then from there, I was able to teach myself how to code. Did you hack into that laptop? So like, like, how did you use it? I mean, you found a laptop and you, and yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. So there was a default administrator password. So it was just like administrator and the password was password. So I didn't have to like reinstall windows or any of that. Yeah. Got it. So, so you're learning how to code. You're going through all these things. You're dealing with the people that are trying to get with these gang initiations, but you also felt like you had something to prove that, you know, you made you feel tougher, which led you into other things that, you know, kind of had you deal with certain circumstances while you, you know, were in college. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Like it's, uh, it's stuff I don't normally talk about, but you know, now, yeah. One of the things about this podcast, you know, that's pretty, it's pretty meaningful is, uh, you know, I was, Ruben, when you and I were talking, you were like, yo, you've got to tell your story. And I was like, yeah, dude, like, I'll, that's not really a thing I'm ready for. You know, but as you brought up, like, hey, like the position that I'm, that I'm in now is like a VP of sales and like companies, the place where it's at now, you were explaining like, and I agree with you, I'm probably safe to talk about this. So one of the things that was a great source of embarrassment, a huge source of shame, and uh, I've basically spent a bunch of years, you know, trying to get past and running away from was that you know, I was at one point you know, when I got tired of being a victim, I became one of those people who was robbing other people. Mm-hmm. And I actually had a crew of people who were doing that underneath me. And fast forward a little bit, I'm 15 years old, get arrested, plead guilty. And the charges are robbery in the first degree, assault with a deadly weapon, possession of stolen property. And that resulted in me being on probation from the ages of 16 through 21, the entire time that I'm like finishing high school like the entire time that I was in college, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Did your high school ever find out? No, of course not. Like if they had found out, I would have been, I feel very confident I would have been expelled immediately. Like this was not the sort of place that would have tolerated that. Like this was against like anything resembling a code of conduct. Yeah. Can you describe a little bit the circumstances kind of led you to joining this crew? And then I guess what were some of the things you were battling with that led you to kind of making these decisions? I mean, I was I was battling with being a white-looking kid in the Bronx who is getting jumped all the time. I was battling with the stresses that come from, you know, literally going between different worlds every day. Like I was literally crossing two sets of train tracks to go from my neighborhood to school every day. So that was a thing. You know, then there was like there were all sorts of like various identity issues that come along with like I didn't quite fit in at school, but I also didn't quite fit in my neighborhood because I was going to this rich kid school. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, who do I identify with? Mm-hmm. Then there were, there were like lots of issues. Like there were tons of like self-esteem issues there, yeah. you know, like being poor and like wishing that I had the same jacket as other people and all the shit. 
you know, there's just like a whole host of things. And then like you add them all up and you put it together with, you know, not having the sort of clear perspective that comes from just being able to take having a brighter future for granted and also Mm -hmm. just straight up being worried about your physical safety. And I made some really stupid, bad decisions. Yeah. 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 And this is actually like, we've had guests on the the podcast before who've kind of, they were faced with choices and kind of the environment they grew up with kind of made it so appealing and so hard to resist. And even like sometimes the circumstances just pushed them towards choices they later regretted. But it sounds like you grew up in the Bronx and like being surrounded by gang violence and being jumped and stuff kind of was definitely like, I, I can't even imagine what it's like kind of growing up and being 15 and facing all of that. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time, you know, it happened at such a lo- young age, you are dealing with either, you know, being like complying with everything that you have to do while you're on probation or facing years of, of jail time and kind of like keeping this a secret and successfully like going through completing all your courses because like some things that you didn't mention is like you're acing all your tests you're like being at the top of your class you're like you're used to winning because i mean you've been selling things from from a young age and you've been doing all these different things and you were thinking about how to overcome those circumstances and in, even while you're on probation you know you're getting internships at what like say, you're going to talk about this in a second like at like 16 years old or something that exposed you to other states while you're on probation which is unique because like some people in college, like I didn't get an internship until I graduated. I never had an internship in, in college. So like you're doing a lot of unique things that a lot of people that don't have any blemishes on the record have not been able to do. So it's interesting dynamic. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how you started getting interested in all these different career trajectories while you're on probation and how you started like pushing yourself, you know, past, you know, winning within these two different worlds that you just described? Yeah. It's interesting because it's easy to try to paint the picture. And even to myself, I kind of wish it was as simple as just like, yeah, so, you know, I got caught robbing people, got on probation. And then all of a sudden I was just like, you know, head down, insert montage scene. And, you know, I just like the head down, like accomplish all this shit. In reality, I was bitter as fuck. I was acting out. I was, you know, I was like troublemaker as a kid, like even when I was on probation, but I was, you know, pretty, pretty self-destructive and acting out. And also, very conscious of the fact that I had to just compartmentalize shit and I would have to deal with the emotional ramifications later. So some of the stuff I had going for me was, yeah, I was really self-aware. I knew that I'd have to face up to this stuff later. I was aware that I was doing antisocial things, but it was kind of like, whatever. I was also really fortunate in that, yeah, academics were not that hard. You know, while I was putting up with the stress of being on probation and, you know, going through the court system and, you know, if anybody found out I'd be expelled from school and that I greatly disappointed my family, you know, like I I went from being like a role model to my sisters to like a cautionary tale of don't be like your brother. All that stuff was like all happening. You know, my mom was in denial, didn't really want to quite face the fact that like, yeah, I I did that shit. You know, that, that was all like conflicting stuff all going on at the same time. At the same time that I was dealing with that though, like, yeah, I was acing my classes. I was, you know, showing you know, I was showing up to school. I was, yeah, like I got a full scholarship to UPenn, Columbia, Amherst, blah, blah, blah. I ended up going to UPenn. Yeah. All that stuff was just kind of like happening at the same time. And then, yeah, like simultaneously, I also got an internship during the tech boom in San Francisco. You know, I got signed up for my probation officer to go to San Francisco to do it. Met a really, really cool guy who like mentored me and like still mentors me to this day. And that was the San Francisco thing. And then after that, yeah, I was 
I dropped out. I was on the cross country and the wrestling teams. I, I dropped out of those things, got a job after school because you know I, I couldn't rob shit anymore. Uh, if I did, I would have gone to probation. So at the same time, by that point, I was old enough that I could actually get a job. So I got a job as a, as a software developer after school, uh, making databases. And uh, yeah, I just, I just worked really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, what's interesting about some of the things that you just, you know, went over very quickly is like, you got this opportunity to go to UPenn, you're still checking in with your probation officer. And these are things in, that a lot of people never share. There's probably, I would assume, like other people at very prestigious schools that got opportunities to be there that never talk about these types of nuances and the type of struggles that they have to go through for decisions that they made in the past. And like you are now figuring out how to get beyond that. And now you got this job that you're doing and, you know, you're thinking about all the opportunities that are on the table in, in your whole life. You know, did you, you talked about this, the nuance of being a source of pride for your family towards, you know, maybe not being so proud of like your family, not being so proud of what you were doing. Were you driven to do more because you wanted to change that back around to what it used to be to when it, when you started thinking about, you know, tech boom and, and more opportunities and things like that, or, or what was driving you to what you wanted to do next? No, I wish I could say it was that altruistic. I was just trying to get the fuck out of the Bronx. You know, any opportunity I had to take a trip outside of the Bronx, whether I go to San Francisco, go to away for college, any of that stuff I was there for. But then at the same time, I was conflicted because my main goal and my dream was to get my family out of the Bronx and put myself in a position where I was earning enough money that my sisters wouldn't have to steal, where my mom's expenses were taken care of, stuff like that. So at some point, you know, so one of, one of the things that you know, sucks about being on probation beyond the fact that like, yeah, if you get caught doing anything illegal, you just like instantly go to jail. And that's pretty scary is the fact that you have to check in with your probation officer before you do like pretty much anything, right? So anytime I had to like change states, anything, you know, my probation officer had to know about it. So that made it so it was like, I couldn't really like, and I had to check in on a very regular basis as well. So I, yeah, like joining a sports team in college, like that was out of the question. Joining any sort of club that would have required regularly changing states, that was out of the question. And in addition, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to participate in social life when underage drinking could, if you get caught doing it, just would result in going to jail. So at some point I just got tired of this and I was just like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm dropping out. I'm going to start my own, my own businesses. And, um, yeah. So that's, that's what I started doing. I, I dropped out, started starting companies, stayed in New York. So I wouldn't have to keep checking with my probation officer because I didn't have to change States. You could get a lot done in New York city. And, uh, yeah, one thing led to another, you know, I started out doing some real estate stuff that turned into some other stuff, some t-shirt stuff, you know, fast forward a little bit. I'm working for hedge funds and then uh, start my own hedge yeah. fund uh, so software company. Tell us about uh, how you made the transition because it sounds like you've done a lot of career pivots. So how did you go from being in uh, real estate and like running a brokerage to getting a job at a hedge fund and eventually starting one? Yeah, well, it wasn't it wasn't quite a straight path. Uh, you know, like there's there's these different skills that I kept see you know um, switching between of being a salesperson and selling more and more and more expensive stuff you know, cultivating really strong sales skills and uh, sales fundamentals, you know, selling real estate is a little more complex than selling a, selling a cable box. And then uh, I'd switch from that, you know, to at some points, like I would just be tired of like working so hard and hustling and I would fall back on my technical skills and just like try to get a job somewhere. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another and somebody who worked for one of my companies introduced me to someone who 
was a consultant for hedge funds. And he was making more money as a consultant for hedge funds than I was making running my own businesses. So I was like, hey, I want to work with that guy. So I, I levered the fact that I knew how to code, started reading a bunch of, um, you know, soft, of a bunch of uh, financial books and stuff like that. I started learning about, this was uh, back in 2007. So I started uh, learning about credit default swaps and like mortgage-backed securities and all this stuff before it was front page news, learned how to model the cash flows and software, and then uh, got a job as a, uh, you know, as a consultant as well. Interesting. Interesting. What a kind of, since it sounds like, yeah, you were in the front lines of the credit crisis and the credit default swaps. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what you witnessed and like any takeaways from there? Uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty cool. Like I, I witnessed some really nice offices. I, you know, I witnessed some, you know, some, some really, you know, some really comfortable chairs and, uh, you know, great monitor situations. It was really cool. Like I was very fortunate to be able to work there and What's cool is like, you know, because I was a consultant and the consulting company that I was working for is really small, they didn't run background checks, which is a really big deal for me. So I was able to like lever all this without, you know, without my past holding me back at that point, which is really cool. So I was like cultivating this like really in-demand skill and getting to work with really smart people. And I went from being somebody who was on the outside of these, you know, crazy fancy buildings like the GM building and stuff like that to being somebody who was on the inside of those buildings. And that was a tremendous source of pride for me. Yeah. So when it comes to, like, so you mentioned you ended up starting your own company and now we know that you're in tech. So what made you switch from something that was like hedge fund sounds like a pretty lucrative business. So what made you switch from hedge funds and start going back to your engineering roots and then working for uh, startups? Well, when I was at the hedge funds, I was an engineer, right? Mm -hmm. So like there was no way, you know, with my, with my, like I found out during a trip to Canada after I was off probation that my criminal past would still show up if you run a deep enough background check. And so I was always scared that that would show up and everything was fine, you know, with my, with my job until the company got big enough and we were working for a hedge fund that was big enough that actually required that everybody fill out this like background check form. Mm -hmm. And that's when I was like, Oh fuck, I got to leave. Right. Cause the level that these hedge funds were at, like I was fairly convinced that if they had run my background check, they would have found it. And uh, I've since run like a pretty deep background check on myself just to see. And it's like, yeah, this shit shows up. Like even if they, even though the record was supposedly sealed, this shit still shows up if you run a deep enough background check. So anyway, so that's why I left. And I was just like, it was really shattering actually, because here I was like, at that point I was 25. I was making an income that was easily in the top 1%. And doing really well for myself, had a bunch of staff reporting to me. And yeah, you know, I, I made it. I was on the inside of the buildings. I wasn't living in the Bronx anymore. I was living in Manhattan. Like I was really proud. But then it was time for me to leave because I knew people would mm -hmm. find out and get fired, all this stuff. So then uh, I had a had a period of time where I like at that point I was a total, totally different socioeconomic status, right? So I did what rich people do when something bad happens to them. I went on a long trip. Started doing some nonprofit work. <laughs> I uh, moved to India for a year and a half. Yeah, you know, I was, I was just like, you know, at that point, I was a totally different person, but still having to confront my past. And then uh, after I did that, I moved back, started another company, sold it, and was like, okay, but it was still in the hedge fund space, and I was hitting that same glass ceiling where I just wanted to duck out before anybody ran my background check. So I was like, you know what, fuck this. I need to go somewhere where I can like take something bigger. And I thought Silicon Valley might be that place. So moved out to San Francisco, started working for other tech firms and was just kind of like, well, 
you know, I, I really just wanted to like really learn strong sales fundamentals, like to a level that was way stronger than anything that I'd done before. So I started working at, at one startup there. I was working as a sales engineer. So sales engineer is a role where you're somebody who's pretty technical, but your job is to help somebody evaluate your tool to figure out whether it solves their problem or not. So I did that for the startup. Then they promoted me to the director of sales engineering. And then I levered that to become the director of sales and marketing at another company. And then um, I went from there. You know, I, I, I like made, made the mistakes I needed to over there, learned, and was able to lever my, my learnings from running sales and marketing at a, at a startup, plus the fact that I'd started companies before and uh, they sold the companies themselves and you know done all that sort of stuff. I was able to, to lever that to end up at the role that I'm at now. Yeah. And having, having the experience of working as an engineer and also having done sales for the listeners, what advice would you have for them to kind of figure out what career path is meant for them or what career path they should pursue? Oh, I, I don't know. I think people should do whatever they're most attracted to, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm somebody like, I was always just selling stuff. And the way, the way that I ended up doing engineering was for a little while, the most, the most, valuable, the most valuable thing that I, can, that I could sell was my own brain as an engineer. And now, now it's a little bit different. Now I, think, now I think I probably add more value by building sales, team than, build, building sales teams than I do as being an individual contributor engineer or even being an engineering leader. Because I did run engineering teams as part of my companies, but yeah, I think it's you just look at your own interests, figure out what what makes sense for you, what you keep being attracted to. Do you feel that sales roles are undervalued in tech or just in general? And the reason why I'm asking that question is because I remember when I was first moving out here, and we talked about this a little bit. A lot of people talked about how there's like thousands of products that are built every day, but a lot of people don't focus as much on the distribution side of things. And even though like that's talked about in like books like Zero to One and classes like CS183, do you feel like people really value sales and the dollars that it brings in? Or what are your thoughts on like sales versus engineering? I think they're both really important. And I think it depends on what organization you're at. So I think that I wouldn't say it's as, as binary as sales versus engineering. It's like pretty much like any role versus any other role. So there's some, you know, some interesting you know, studies, I think like thinking fast and slow talks about this, you know, a lot of research talks about this. If you take any group of people and ask them to rank their contributions versus their peers and add it all up, it's always going to add up to over hundred percent. And it's usually not because people necessarily think that what they're doing is more important. They're just more aware of what they've done, right? So if you're an engineer, you're, you're hyper aware of like how hard it is to be an engineer and all the things you've done to be an engineer. If you're a salesperson, you're very aware of like all those late night flights you're taking and like all the time you're out of the office and all these objections and how hard it is like when the product isn't working and all this stuff, right? But it's the same thing for marketing, same thing for being the office manager, same thing for being the CEO, same thing for being the CTO. Every single role, um, everybody's like very hyper aware of what they're doing. So I think it's it's really just the best way to tell whether what you're going to do is going to be valued or not strongly in an organization is probably what's the CEO's background. So when there's like an engineering heavy CEO, they're probably going to value engineering more than sales. If it's a sales heavy CEO, they'll probably hire sales more, value sales more than engineering. That's a typical way of kind of gauging. But then on the flip side, if you're working with a very self-aware CEO who understands that something's really difficult, 
right? Like maybe they try to start a startup and it failed because they couldn't get strong sales, even though they're an engineering leader. Then, you know, you could end up in a really strong organization, one like Hustle, where both engineering and sales are, are valued. And we've also got a customer success team that's really highly valued. We've got a product team that's really highly valued. Everybody, you know, I think it flows from the top down. So you got to look at the CEO, right? And if the CEO is like a chill or not, not fuck chill, like intense, like whatever, you know, if they're like a self-aware sort of person who's got this goal to make people feel valued, then you'll feel valued. Yeah, no, that, that's a great breakdown on, on how to think about it. And you, you brought up customer success, which I think is very interesting because like I've seen customer success teams, customer support teams at different organizations. We've interviewed a lot of them. But for Hustle, I've also seen the way that they work with your team or on your team to upsell. So can you kind of talk about that nuance once a deal has been closed? Yeah, sure. So after a deal has been closed, again, this is like, depends on the maturation of the company. For the the first while, after a deal was closed, I was also then responsible for handling the upsell because, well, who else is going to do it? Right. And then there's two parts to it, right? There's the contractual part, and then there's the expanding their usage part, right? And then what the customer success team does at Hustle specifically is they focus on the usage part. So, you know, one of our, like, you know, like Ruben mentioned earlier, we work with Planned Parenthood, right? Well, Planned Parenthood has something like 59 regional affiliates who all need to get onboarded on using Hustle and who all need to be supported as they, you know, as they measure the effectiveness of the tool and figure out internally how many resources to allocate towards rolling it out. And are they going to do something with the email or text messaging? And if they're going to use text messaging, do they use us to send peer-to-peer ones? Or do they use something else to send blast messages? How are they going to do things? Right. The customer success team makes sure that the clients are really supported, have a really pleasant experience, and find it easier to expand their use of our tool versus trying out any other method. Right. And so it's it's kind of so like they really set it up like you know, like that if they do a really good job. And then that sets up the account management team, which so remember there was account executives. Well, after a deal is closed, they'll hand it off to account managers. The account managers have the financial conversation of like, hey, are you going to renew? Are you going to buy more? So, you know, that's an upsell. Are you going to sell, you know, are you going to buy this? Are you going to introduce this to other members of your organization so they can use it for different use cases? That's called a cross-sell. You know, like like you do, you know, there's all these different roles and that's customer success versus account managers. And Hustle is fortunate to be at the position where we actually have both of those. And which also goes into the whole thing that you brought up before with the difference between a B2B startup and a B2C startup because like, at Hustle, which is B2B, you focus on ARR, right? Yeah. And which is annual recurring revenue. And it's really important to have these like annual contracts and these teams that are able to get people to renew, like you just said. Yeah. Like, so the interesting thing, like if you're trying to grow a real business, then it actually stops mattering how much like one-time revenue you get because that one-time revenue, you got to do it again, right? So like, let's say it's kind of like if you sell a car, well, you just sold the car, right? Now, now you got to sell another car to keep your revenue the same. With uh, B2B SaaS companies, you don't want to, what you want to do is you want to rent things to people, have them really rely on it so that they keep paying you and like it grows. On the flip like side- Like the Salesforce mo- model. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, like Salesforce invented the category of SaaS, you know, yeah, software, software as a service. service yeah. yeah. They invented that. Like they're, they're the OGs of, of um, you know, that, that kind of- sale and that kind of product and business in Silicon Valley. And so we're of the same mindset where we do that. Like, so the, the flip side of them paying you this kind of like rent essentially for the software is that it ends up being way cheaper 
right? So you're able to make a product, have a lot of people use it all at the same time. So you, you spread out your development resources across all of this. And then you start, you know, and not just that, but also for developing the tool, but also maintaining, you know, the, the uptime of that tool and also rolling out updates and all this kind of stuff. Everybody just uses everything like they're, they're living on servers. And um, so everybody's paying you rent. On the flip side, what they get for that is they're paying a whole team that's going to maintain it, the whole team that's going to help them use it, a whole team that's, you know, that's incented to answer their questions and help them solve real business challenges with the product. You know, that's kind of how it all works. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it sounds like up until this point, a lot of times when it comes to sales, you just sold whatever you can sell to people. And it sounds like what you're doing now is more aligned with things that you're passionate about. And kind of like, how did you you know, get passionate about like this political, like nonprofit education type space in the first place? Yeah. So the, like the, the way that targeting, the way that polit- that outreach works when you're a political campaign or a nonprofit or anything is you come up with these, these different attributes of a person and you figure out a way to put them in a, in a spreadsheet or some sort of data model. Right. And it spits out a number. And if that number is high enough, you decide that it's worth your your organization's time, energy, and money to reach out to that person. If it's below a certain bar, then you don't, right? And how high or how low that bar is is going to be a function of how much money you have to reach out to them and how effective the tools are. Therefore, whether it's cost effective to reach out to them or not. Well, what Hustle does is it takes all those models and pretty much they stay the same, but the inputs become different because when you're using Hustle to reach out to people, you can send out text messages to reach people across the digital divides, right? So people who don't even have computers, people who don't necessarily even have smartphones, you can send them text messages, right? And then our pricing is such that you could do it for less than the cost of even sending them mail, right? So now you start getting to a situation where people that in all those models and spreadsheets and everything weren't even worth being reached out to by campaigns, all of a sudden, now you can reach out to them. And so what got me really passionate about this was that the first test that Roddy and Perry were doing, they were actually messaging people in uh, Bakersfield, California, and asking them to text and then call in to the... Sorry, they were texting with them and asking them to call their congressperson and then even show up to that congressperson's office, right? And this was you know people fighting for immigration reform. And I was just like, wow, like they're actually reaching out to people who aren't normally reached out to. They're reaching out to poor people. They're reaching out to, you know, to immigrants and like getting them to, to be politically active. And then I was like, well, fuck, you know, like something like this, this could actually, like, this is something that I actually want to sell, you know, because selling this means that more people get politically active. So, you know, I'm in a position now that, you know, I could probably talk my way into selling most things. I could probably talk my, my way into the sales position at you know, any organization that has a real product. But what's, what's special about this one is that the more time and energy I put into selling this, I'm actually solving the problems of organizations like Planned Parenthood and Everytown and people yeah. like that. So like going back to the whole thing about, you know, it's clear that you're passionate about everything that's going on with messaging when it comes to, to what you're selling now. But I know earlier in the conversation, you kind of touched a little bit more on the reasons why sometimes people from poor communities don't get involved with politics. And can you kind of like give a little bit more color on that so that people that are trying to reach these constituents can get a better idea of why that might be the case sometimes? Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't want to pretend I'm a spokesperson for everybody, but 
I know for myself, one of the ways that I felt was like people would, people from outside the neighborhood would come in, set up these tables, tell us all that we should go vote and then, uh, you know, leave before it got dark and, you know, it doesn't matter really who we voted for, nothing would ever change. And yeah, that was, that, that was just my experience. And, you know, and then it's, it makes sense, right? Like it's, it's a function of, uh, what percentage of people vote, you know, how much power is in there. And also just the fact that if you're, a, if you're a fairly well-off person, you're a congressperson, city council person, senator, you know, they're all actually calling you saying, Hey, what's important to you? Oh yeah. You know, we're having this fundraiser. You should give us money, but also, yeah, what's, what's important to you. They're actually hearing that, right. Versus if you're a less well-off person, if you're a poor person, then it's, it's very different. You're making these phone calls and nobody's hearing you. Nobody's paying any attention to you whatsoever. Maybe you're leaving messages. Maybe you're talking to a staffer, you know, but one of the first things that they ask you is like, they ask you your name, what's your zip code? And then they can look up what your voting record is, not who you voted for, but just did you vote? And so if you're, you know, so if you're a newly registered voter, well, then you show up as like, you voted in one of the last X number of elections. Uh, just as a function of your age, right? And that's taken less seriously than somebody who's voted two or three or four times in the last few elections. So when you combine the fact that young people who don't donate aren't really listened to with the fact that if you're an older person, but you're a minority, it's like harder for you to even know where you're supposed to vote. And then there's all these like voter disenfranchisement things that go on where you need like certain kinds of ID that you might not have and stuff like that. It makes it really hard for you to vote. And then, yeah, you're just used to not really being listened to. Yeah. And no, it's good. It's exciting to see what you've built. It's, it's, I'm excited to be working with you again and seeing where all this type of stuff goes. And for people that are interested in you know, breaking into a tech company, it sounds like sales is, a, is an interesting role because a lot of things that we talk about on the podcast are about cold emailing and being persistent and meeting with people, a lot of those skills are relevant to breaking into sales roles. So we really appreciate this kind of overview of how to get into a sales position. Where do you see, what do you see, how are you thinking about building your sales team over this next year? And then we'll go into to the lightning round. Sure. So over the course of the next year, well, actually I have, I have a spreadsheet that says exactly what roles I'm hiring for and how many of them and all that stuff. So on that spreadsheet, you know, you'll see I need to hire a certain number more SDRs, certain number more AEs. Some of those SDRs are going to be promoted and become inside sales reps. And that's how I'm going to build out the inside sales team. I'm probably going to hire like one more manager from the outside and then promote the rest from within. I'm also hiring for sales operations roles, which are like people who help handle the details of how our sales force is configured and how our billing system, you know, talks to it and things like that. Then I'm also hiring for, oh yeah, stuff up and down the marketing team. So event managers, hiring people who write content, people, you know, to create press releases and all that, all that sort of stuff for marketing. Then, uh, oh yeah, then sales engineers, more account managers. We're just hiring all up and down. Yeah. And for Everyone listening now, Hustle is not the only company that is growing fast and is trying to expand. So if you are trying to break into tech, just realize that like, if you have a skill, if you have the drive, if you have the passion, you can uh, reach out to these hiring managers and you can uh, just apply. And if you do a good enough job of being persistent, then there's nothing stopping you from having a job in tech in two, three months. 
That's cool. So with everything said, we're going to do the lightning round now. And this is the part of the podcast where the three of us will ask you several questions. And these questions are meant to be more brief, but try to fill them with any strategies, any tactics or resources that you've used to get to where you are today. So Arthur, take it away. Yeah. So you've dropped a lot of um, wisdom on us today on like how to um, break into sales and how the sales orgs are structured. What are some of your favorite books on sales? And kind of where do you recommend someone who's trying to break into sales to start their research on? So yeah, so some of my favorite books on sales are Challenger Sales, really strong book. And then uh, when, when I was first getting started, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know, then there's like personal motivation stuff like Think and Grow Rich. There was this book, it's not a particularly famous book, but one that covers a lot of like fundamentals of uh, especially B2C sales, Endless Referrals. I like that book a lot. And then there's uh, lots of books on sales management, lots of books about uh, the technicalities of uh, setting up a modern sales team, like Sales Development Playbook, which goes into whole SDR theory. There's quite a few books. Yeah, Predictable Revenue is a really good one as well on SDR theory, like this. Uh, this this new this whole new thing, yeah. There's quite a quite a few books. Th- those would probably be my be like the first ones. Like I would, I feel pretty confident that probably every single person on my team has read all those books. Yeah, and we talked a lot about the Bronx. We talked a lot about New York and your your story. And there's a lot of things that the New York is known for. And another thing that they're known for is is music. And so like music has influenced us a lot. And it may not be music for you when it came to certain dark times that you were going through that helped you break you know, out of like kind of like a certain struggle or valley that you might have been in. But is music a way that helps you, you know, get inspired whenever you're going through a dark time or is it a movie or is it something else? But, you know, what do you do to overcome a rejection on a sale or something like that? I mean, rejection on a sale isn't really something that I need motivation on. Like that's just you get a certain number of no's before you get to the yes. So like that's that's actually like that's not even a thing. But I think I get what you're saying, right? Like some something bad happens. How do we recuperate? How do I give myself that pep talk? For me, it's it's working out. It's hitting the gym, do physical activity, like going for runs, things like that. It, it, you know, I've, I've cultivated the skill of having a lot of positive self talk for you know for a really long time. So you know, I I always I don't have trouble believing myself these days, and haven't for a really long time. So it's it's mostly just about like getting the getting that endorphin rush of you know that comes from going for a run, lifting heavy weights, that sort of thing. That's kind of how our our conversation that led to this kind of started. Because I remember when we were living at the house together, you know, we were talking about I was here about a one way ticket as well. Was living there for a month, and you know, I was waking up at five a.m. to go to the gym too. And you were talking about how important routines were and the dynamics in the house and how you know the rest of the house should be working out and. Uh, we're just catching up about that to see how that was going. So that's that's cool. Yeah, for for everybody who doesn't know, Ruben wakes up at five a.m. every single morning. Not every day. But okay. Sometimes, a lot of times. A, a lot of mornings depends which time zone. It's five a.m. somewhere. And uh, one of the things that I that I admire about him being his housemate is I'd wake up Sunday morning or sorry Saturday morning at like eleven a.m. or something, and Ruben's coming back from church in a suit already worked out. Like this, uh, yeah, the man's a machine. Yeah. No, we live with Ruben too, and uh, we can attest to that as well. Um, <laughs> and that workout stuff actually came from these guys too, where they always emphasize the importance of routines. And like a lot of times we, we talk about working super hard and like having these processes to, to go through. But a lot of times when you when you think about productivity and being a oh, quote unquote workaholic, 
a lot of people don't factor in the the importance of balance and like these routines that help us focus on us and, and our health are really uh, valuable. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you the next question. And uh, this question is meant, to, is meant to be a bit of a doozy. So typically it goes like, if you can send a Facebook message to everyone on the planet, what would it be? Hustle being a text messaging company, right? If you can send a text message to everyone and you know the open rate is going to be 100%, what would that message say? Probably a thumbs up and a rocket ship emoji. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Solid. 10x. And so given that you've been through a very amazing trajectory and still have a long way to go over a period of life, is there any advice that you would give someone, the, the younger you now that you've been through this experience and like how would that would help them like get to the same point that you're in today? Like how would you change the choices that you made? And I'm not necessarily talking about the, any of the negative choices, but like what advice would you give your younger self to get to the same point now that you've been through all of it? Let me see. If, if it were possible to like teleport, I would just show a photo of me now somewhere dope and just say like, yo, don't, don't stress out. You know, just, just hang in there. You don't got to worry about shit. Just keep your head down. Like you'll be good. Yeah. And this being a podcast where we have a lot of people who have to go into interviews and sell themselves. What would you say, what advice about selling or selling yourself when you're meeting people, when you're telling your story, would you have for our listeners? And, and like to piggyback the end of that too, is like, what does a sales interview look like? Like when you're pitching yourself in these types of conversations, yeah, we talk about that. It's interesting, right? Because like the better you get at sales, the more that dynamic changes. So I think like if you do the hard work of finding out about the company, you know, maybe maybe even like showing up there with some sales, uh, <laughs> but, but certainly like researching the people you're talking to, you know, following up with them really strongly, things like that. You've already demonstrated that you can do, that you can do the job. Selling yourself is less, is less important. You know, you should really be, be focusing your time. Like one of the main things that a salesperson actually has to do is um, make sure that they're selling a product that they can get behind. And, uh, you know, so if you do that, right, the rest of the rest of it, I'm not going to say it takes care of itself because it doesn't. You still got to bust your ass and work really hard, but at least you're on the right path, right? Then it's just about putting effort into things and you already know you're going to go in the right direction. So I'd say it's, it's a lot less about selling yourself so much as it is just like being somebody that people want to buy. Yeah. The first product you build is yourself. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. 100%. But <laughs> yeah. it comes back to that. And how can people get in touch with you? I mean, my name's Isiad. That's spelled Y-S-I-A-D. There's only one of me. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on, yeah, just put that thing in Google and you'll, you'll, you can figure out how to reach me. Yeah. And we'll include uh, your name and stuff in our show notes as well. So if people want to get the spelling, we want to include the email because they have to do a little <laughs> bit of work. But And, and like, and like <laughs> ECI is not just somebody that's oppressive from a sales perspective, but just like from an org and a culture perspective, he thinks a lot about burnout and things like that. And he's very, he's very very smart way when, when, when it comes to thinking about people from not traditional backgrounds. And so if you are inspired by this interview, you uh, want to get in touch, whether it's working for us or not, definitely reach out and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, I definitely want to reiterate that. Like well, one of the things I'm really passionate about is helping other people get wherever it is that they're trying to go. So, you know, part of the reason I'm sharing my story is I'm, is I'm hoping that if you are somebody who, you know, maybe comes from a comes from a hard background, you know, made some mistakes in their past and just looking for a place where you can work hard or 
you know, place you could really show off your skills, reach out to me. Whether there's a space in, in my organization or not, like I'm happy to point you in the right direction, put you in touch with people and yeah, really help help bring each other up. Thank you for your yeah. time. No more working silos. Let's build collectively and we'll talk to you soon, man. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.